Hello, friends, and welcome to the U-Turn Podcast. This is your host, Ashley Stahl. I'm a career expert, a speaker, a best-selling author of the book, U-Turn. Get unstuck, discover your direction, design your dream career. And I created the U-Turn book and the podcast as a place to help you connect to who you truly are at your core. And that's why every single week, I want to bring a guest on with the intention of helping you expand what's possible for you, both in your confidence, whether it's in work or love, and just in life in general. So let's get into this week's episode. Okay, U-Turn friends, it's Ash here. And today I'm doing something kind of rare. I'm having two people on the show to interview at once. And I'm really excited about the challenge. I have Susan Magsalmon and Ivy Ross on the show. So let me start with Ivy. She's vice president for Google at, or for hardware at Google, and she leads a team that has created over 50 products, winning over 225 design awards. Um, So it doesn't sound like Ivy's been taking too many naps lately. And she was a grant recipient of the National Endowment for Arts grant um, and was ninth on Fast Company's list of the 100 most creative people in business in 2019. And we have Susan, on the other hand, she's the founder and the director of the International Arts and Mind Lab Center for Applied Neuroaesthetics at the Pedersen Brain Science Institute at the um, at of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, um, where she is a faculty member in the Department of Neurology and also the co-director of the Neuro Arts Blueprint. Um, first of all, I have to say welcome. Also, I'm sitting in the bedroom of my partner right now who lives in Miami and he went to Johns Hopkins school of, um, I, th- I think he studied biomedical engineering over there, but waiting school of waiting school. Yeah. Yeah. He has nothing but beautiful things to say. And his friends are some of the most intelligent, interesting men that I have ever met. So I'm really excited to talk to you both and just, um, benefit from the magic of your brains. And, um, I know you have your book called Your Brain on Art, which is such a cool, such a cool title. And so obviously we have to, we have to talk about creativity today, how to be more creative, how to access your creativity. Um, Can we start with what is neuroaesthetics or neuro arts? Sure, sure. Well, thank you for having us. It's really a pleasure. And um, we're, we've been looking forward to this. Um, You know, neuroaesthetics is sort of this like, you know, uh, bill word, but it's really very simple. And I think it makes a lot of sense, which it's really at its core, the study of how the arts and aesthetic experiences measurably can be uh, measurably change your brain, body and behavior. And then importantly, how that knowledge can be translated into specific practices that advance our health and our well-being and our learning. And so the science is called neuroaesthetics and the field is called neuroarts. And we're literally building this entirely new field of thinking about translational science of how what we know about our brains and bodies can be used through the lens of the arts to really help us grow and learn and, and really be more whole human beings. Mm, you know, it's, it's so interesting for me also just reading Ivy's bio and yours, just thinking about how um, sometimes in the business world, it can seem like business is so black and white, like there's a masculinity or an intensity. And by masculinity, I don't mean gender. It's just an energy of um, it's always in motion. You need to go and get a lot of pursuit. Um, and, And I think that one of the things that's been so healing for me is to realize that to 
be a business person is one of the highest forms of creativity. Oh, absolutely. To be a good business person. I mean, I think, you know, I think we've been optimizing for productivity since the industrial revolution. And we kind of push thinking that would make us happy, pushing the arts to the side a little bit. And I think now what science is proving, which is giving us permission to bring them back in is, you know, what some of us intuitively have known that you need the balance of the right and left brain, the data and the intuition to be a good business person. And so a lot of these arts, they allow you to express yourself and uh, alive in your sensory systems are incredibly important to be a balanced business person. Right. And I, and I feel like, you know, we're always working on ourselves. All of us have different magic. And I think, you know, we, we grew up in a world, especially with social media, where we're kind of told what is beautiful or what is intelligent or what is in or what is different or what is unique. And it can be really hard to be yourself. So I imagine as you're writing your brain on art, there's probably quite an element of like, how do you even be you to allow your brain to attune to its art? So, um, you know, one of the questions I want to ask you is about art rewiring the brain. How does that happen? Um, Yeah, either of you, I would love to hear. Well, I just to step back for a second and then yeah. and then move into that. What you just said really was a kind of an interesting hit for me. You know, in 2019, um, Ivy um, hosted an event in Milan um, called a space for being with Google, mm-hmm. where we had this opportunity to create three different rooms, kind of living room spaces, living room, dining room spaces with three different neural aesthetic um, sensorial experiences. And we had each of the participants come through with a band um, that measured variable heart rate, respiration and, um, and body temperature. And what we asked them to do was just be in a space and feel the space, smell, touch, taste, experience the space quietly. And they moved through each of the spaces. And at the end, um, Ivy had a, a band tender, not a bartender, as she likes to huh? say, um, take the band and read out the data in this very beautiful sort of uh, watercolor uh, a mandala that showed where the activity was. And we asked people one question, what room did you feel most, what room did you most like? Where did you feel most comfortable? And over 56% of the people got it wrong. So Mm -hmm. what their brains were telling them and what their bodies were telling them were two very different things. And I think to your point is not only do we get all these external inputs, but we have learned not to listen to our bodies, not to listen to ourselves, not to really feel but to sort of cognitively override. And so what's really cool about the arts in terms of how they wire the brain is that, you know, we are evolutionarily physiologically wired to bring the world in through our sensory systems, right? Mm -hmm. And so all this touch, taste, smell. And so you're born with a hundred billion neurons plus or minus. And as you're bringing in these sensorial experiences, your neurons are being connected through the synapses on each of those neurons. So you're making literally quadrillions of synaptic connections in the brain. And those are creating endless circuits and neural pathways 
And those are the, those neural pathways are what underlie emotion, memory, physical movement, basically everything that you do. And so when you're engaging in arts, you're actually making some synaptic connections stronger and some weaker. And it's through what we call the saliency or the important experiences, um, things that are emotionally important to you or practically important. And um, I'm going to turn it over to Ivy because um, um she can talk a little bit about what happens um, to the synapses that you're not using. I love science. I love research. This is like magic to my ears. <laughs> uh, and I, I actually accidentally poke guests too often to give me science on topics that maybe aren't their zone. So this is really exciting to hear what you have to say and even just to hear that experiment. Um, so yeah, Ivy, I would love to hear. Yeah. And by bit. the way, with that experiment, we love to talk about this quote from Jill Bolte Taylor that says, we are, we think that we're thinking beings that have learned how to feel, but we're actually feeling beings that have learned how to think. Mm. And if you really think about that, it turns everything inside out. And that's why with that experiment, really, you know, people, journalists afterwards said, oh, is Google going to make a band that, you know, tells you how you feel? And I'm like, I don't want to live in a world where I have to wear a band that tells me how I feel. Right. We did to show you that we are embodied beings and that our body is feeling all the time, but somehow our minds override it. Um, but anyway, being back to what um, Susan was saying about these salient experiences, what I learned, and you know, writing this book with Susan for me was this beautiful learning journey. Um, but I love this idea that all of these new salient experiences, which are ones that are emotionally charged, um, making new synapses, it actually prunes out the old connections, which just like our cells, I think every seven years, we're actually new bodies because our cells. Yes. Well, our brain, if you put yourself in these positions of having these salient experiences, your brain will prune out the old ones. So I like to say I've gotten rid of my first husband that way by having (laughs) a lot of, a lot of beautiful new salient experiences that the old ones go out. No, I love my ex-husband. But I love her ex-husband too. <laughs> but I just think it's remarkable that we can really become new people, new brains, just right. by the experiences that we give ourselves. And a lot of these salient experiences come from, and when we say the arts, by the way, we're not just talking about painting. We're talking about painting, dancing, singing, theater, sound, right. light color, writing, um, virtual reality, cooking, you know, using digital arts. I mean, it really is those things, as we said in the beginning, that liven our sensory systems. Yeah, we're, We're feeding our brain all the time, but we forget about we have to feed our sensory systems. And yes. we're rewiring it. We're rewiring. I mean, I think that's what Ivy's saying. And we're also changing structure. So, you know, it's one thing to change the circuitry, which is extraordinary that you can actually do that. I mean, that is, you know, somebody said to you, if you um, engage in arts, if you engage your sensory systems, if you're curious, if you seek awe and wonder, you're going to be a better learner, a better worker. You maybe make more money. You maybe you maybe have better relationships what's not to love, right? Like what's not to embrace in that kind of um, kind of paradigm? My friend, are you ready to stay hydrated this summer? I have something for you, grapefruit salt from Element. 
It's L-M-N-T. Because healthy hydration isn't just about drinking water. It's about water and electrolytes. It makes sense. You lose both water and sodium when you sweat. And both of those need to be replaced to prevent muscle cramps, headaches, energy dips throughout the day. But most people only replace the water. So why is that? Well, since the 1940s, we've been told to drink eight glasses of water per day, thirsty or not. But drinking beyond your thirst is a bad idea. It actually dilutes your blood electrolyte levels, especially sodium, which leads to headaches, low energy, cramps, confusion, or worse. So this low sodium situation called hyponatremia is super common among endurance athletes, and the solution is not to stop drinking water either. It's to drink water with electrolytes. That is where LMNT, my favorite brand for electrolytes, has you covered. So former research biochemist Rob Wolf and KetoGains co-founder Louis Villasenor formulated Element to provide the optimal ratios of sodium, potassium, and magnesium for health, performance, and energy. They also formulated Element to please your palate. It tastes so good. Try orange salt, citrus salt, watermelon salt, or you can experiment with five other flavors like this summer's grapefruit. I even like to put Element's chocolate flavor into my coffee in the morning sometimes. So Element just gave us a really fun offer. All you have to go do is head on over to drinkelement.com slash Ashley Stahl. That's D-R-I-N-K. L-M-N-T dot com slash A-S-H-L-E-Y-S-T-A-H-L to receive a free sample pack of every flavor with your first purchase. My personal favorite is the watermelon and the lime. Again, that's drinkelement.com slash Ashley Stahl. Your salty little summer starts now. Mm, okay, well, first of all, um, I'm friends with this man named John Levy, and he is in New York. I don't know if you've met John, but he has a small business group. It's kind of this underground dinner party where you cook dinner. It's invite only, and it's everything from Olympic athletes to actors to authors. Um, and, and I was lucky enough to be invited to one of them and to meet him. And he wrote a book, and he shared in his research that the number one most memorable human experience or human feeling is awe. And I love that so much because it feels so obvious for people to pull things off the shelf like love or friendship or warmth, but awe. It's like, and what's so cool for me as I don't really identify as a coach, but I guess based on all my studies, that's what I'm doing, um, is that I get to do that all the time, whether it's something I say or somebody else says, you know, I, I'm not necessarily the the magic uh, drug every time on this show, um, being able to create a sense of on. And you pointed out uh, something that was really profound to me talking about how these neuropathways, and I'm going to butcher the science so you can correct me, but the neuropathways or um, that they kind of undo when you have a new synapse. Um, so it's almost like, you know, I've said many times in my work or even in the book that I wrote with every new belief you have about the world, like if it's profound enough and how you see the world, there's you're undoing so many others. Um, it's almost like an old version of you is dying. And one thing I've said quite often in my work is that your purpose always moves because we are constantly evolving. And I, that's why I really don't like 
this idea that we should have a purpose and that it should be through work all the time, because it's like on a cellular level, we're not even the same all the time. Um, and even to sift through what is true to us. I mean, given that our, our senses are so limited through our human bodies, can, do we even see, you know, I think about bugs, they see so much more than we do. They have more content and context to work with, to decide what is true for them or what we, we decide is true for us. So in a world that's changing so much, um, I would a just love to hear what results you found from that experiment with the wristbands. Cause I feel like everybody listening is probably wondering what did you learn about the people who, um, from the, the band tender and, uh, what you saw happening with people's hearts and, and brains, um, as they walked through those different rooms. And also how can somebody, you know, listening right now, get started in tapping into their creative self? Well, you know, I think when you were talking about awe, what reminded me of in the book, we talked to Bo Lido, who is a neuroscientist, and he did some work with awe related to Cirque du Soleil. And, you know, awe can be found in the, um, the smallest of things, like the smell of a newborn baby or a sunrise or a sunset. You know, the awe has this ability to show up in lots of places. But he did an experiment with Cirque du Soleil. And, you know, we all know about how all physiologically changes us. We might, you know, gasp. We might, um, you know, experience um, goosebumps. Um, we have a physiological response to all. But we also have a psychological response to all, which is that we feel connected to others and we feel like we're part of something bigger. Mm -hmm. But what Bo also found, which is interesting, is that people that have experiences of awe take more risk. And if you're going to grow as a human being and have that agility and that, um, that resiliency and capacity to meet a changing world and know kind of how you move, as you were describing around passions and purposes, you have to be able to take risk. And so in the, in, so all is one of those things that helps you to do that. And we also talk about um, something called the aesthetic mindset, which is something that Ivy and I coined to talk about how do you ready yourself to move into the world? And it's four things. It's creativity and curiosity. So mm -hmm. being open to kind of a curious mind, you know, Yo-Yo Ma talks about the beginner's mind, right? Like coming to something with a fresh eye. And the second is playful exploration. Like how do you not judge yourself and critique yourself and limit, you know, yes or no, right or wrong, red or white. And the other is um, sensorial experiences, opening yourself up to light, sound, touch, smell, taste. You know, touch is an amazing sensorial experience. Um, you know, each, each of our fingers has 3,000 nerve endings. So the ability to be able to bring the world in through touch is so extraordinary. And the last is your capacity for making and beholding. And as it turns out, we're makers and beholders all the time. Like what we're doing right now is improv. You know, I don't know what you're going to say. Ivy doesn't know what I'm going to say. I don't know what Ivy's going to say. That's a dance. And when we allow it to breathe, we learn, we grow, you know, Ivy's a, a lifelong learner and she is because she dances, you know, she, she was a dancer. She, you know, and so the ability to use these arts to inform capacity is really, there is nothing else like that. And, you know, you mentioned in the beginning, um, Ashley, creativity, and I want to touch on something that Susan just talked about, which is play as one of these elements. And people think that the opposite of play is work and it's actually depression. Oh, is wow. the opposite 
play. And um, one, the, one of the definitions of play is doing something different than you do every day, but without any expected outcome. And I think we've gotten, because that's where true creativity comes from. Right. It's like when you're a kid and you have no agenda, but you just start picking something up and discovering it. Right. And it's the same thing with, in terms of starting with these arts, first of all, it has to start with no judgment, <laughs> just mm -hmm. like no outcome, no judgment. And so many people I think have stopped <clears throat> doing any kind of art form because they think they're no good at it or because it was not, they decided it wasn't going to be their profession. So it's a waste of time if they do it. And um, so absolutely no judgment. And then it's like playing, playing with coloring inside the lines, outside the lines, playing with clay, but really just discovering through your sensory systems, not having this, oh, what am I going to make? It has to be good right. or any of that. So that that's like the first thing to start. Wouldn't you say, Susan? Yeah. And that's a very prefrontal, you know, the front of our brains came online at the very late in, in human evolution. And so in the prefrontal cortex, there's a part of the brain that is that critique sort of judger. And if you're trying to master something and you're trying to perfect something, you want that. But the other part of the prefrontal cortex is basically shutting, is saying, this is where flow and creativity and that sort of sense of playful exploration, timelessness happens. And we have to go to both places. But when we only are in that judgmental place, we are never really able to freely sort of understand kind of what it is we want to say because we never allow that to happen and that's really important for physical and mental health mm, okay you you both are giving me my brain is on art right now with you <laughs> yes okay, so, first welcome to our side yeah, welcome. I mean, as someone who got her her graduate degree in psychology I mean after I studied national security so it was kind of a causal thing to study war and then maybe go over to psychology yeah, spiritual psychology, no less. So it was like a spiritual awakening after all the war studies. But one of the things I learned is how much life is an experiment. It's the biggest message in my book uh, outside of the core message, which is don't do what you love, do what you are. Who are you? Because I think what is what is that um, director that won an award? He said, what is most personal is most creative. Mm -hmm. um, and that struck me so much, speaking mm -hmm. of a sense of awe, um, and so I love that you encourage experimentation. And I think one of the um, challenges a lot of people have is black and white thinking, especially if they have anxiety. Uh, anxiety wants control, right? Like anxiety can look like wanting to know what time things are happening way in advance for self-soothing. Um, anxiety can look like it's either this way or that way because they want to have an answer and being in the gray is really uncomfortable. Um, mm -hmm. And so for me, it's just been a huge tool to say, instead of this is the way it is, what are my options? Just that question has been transformative for me. So how do you help people um, or how do you suggest someone who maybe their brain is predispositioned to kind of be like this or that? Maybe they have like some control issues, no judgment friends who are listening. We've all been there. Um, and they want to start seeing things differently. I always ask myself in the mirror, how can I see this differently? when I'm in a challenging situation. So how can someone start to see this differently when it comes to their brain on art? I wanna give you two examples and then I know Ivy will have some too. The first is to remember that sometimes it's the space between the notes, it's the pause where the default mode network 
comes online when you're not bringing in all of the sensory information. It's where you daydream. It's where you mind wander. It's where you make a decision about what you like and don't like sort of this idea of identity that you're talking about who you are. Mm -hmm. The default mode network is part of that process. It's in the saliency network part of the brain. And so the ability to be able to pause, you know, we're always going transaction, 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 and we don't know how to sit with ourselves sometimes. But in the book, we we interviewed a woman named Dr. Meg, Meg Chisholm, who is a psychiatrist at Johns Hopkins, and she does this work called visual teaching strategies. And it's the simplest process. She, she takes fourth-year medical students, but anybody can do this, um, to museums or murals outside or a piece of art. Sometimes it's even just a tree in nature. And she asks three questions in a group setting. Um, and these people sometimes um, know each other, but oftentimes they don't. And it's about perspective taking. And so she asks, the first question is, what do you see? Mm -hmm. And you don't have any context. It's just, what do you see? And everybody has an opportunity to go around and say what they see. Mm -hmm. And you're hearing what other people are seeing without critique and without judgment and without interpretation. It's just simply, what do you see? Mm -hmm. And the second question is, what else do you see? Mm -hmm. And they go around. And then the third question is, is there anything else that you see? Mm -hmm. And it's an amazing exercise because what you start to see is that it isn't black and white, right or wrong. Um, there isn't tolerance for ambiguity and, um, and a capacity for wonder. And you start to understand that people see different things all the time in yeah. the same context. So perception. Yeah. And I think that's really, really important to start to open up that idea that um, there are many ways to see the same thing and, and bring it back into yourself. I love that. And um, I, you, you touched on saliency. And I also want to ask again about that experiment, because I was so like on the edge of my seat wondering, like, what did you conclude from seeing all these wristbands? So I want to ask, you know, just what is saliency? Because you mentioned that that term and, and how does that impact our biology? Um, and also just anything you could share about what you learned from that experiment. Well, first of all, it, con it confirmed the fact that um, what people are thinking in their cognitive mind doesn't always match what their body is feeling and that we're disconnected because we're not embodied beings, many folks. Yeah. Um, also, what I have to share a story with you that brought tears to our eyes. Also, the fact that cultural context and memory plays into all of this. So we had a woman uh, who went through this, who's from Latin America, grew up poor. And she said her cognitive mind, because um, all three rooms were beautiful. They were just a different vibe, different music, different scent, different colors, textures, art. But they were all, you know, aspirational or beautiful. And she said, she walked in, she's like, I don't deserve any of these rooms. That's what her brain was saying to herself. And when, and each of them had a different vibe. One of them was a little more playful, one a little more sophisticated. What, this, what the data showed in terms of what her body was feeling is that her body was most comfortable in the second room, which was very playful. And when we told her that, she just started crying and she realized, oh my God, when I was a child growing up poor, the only time I was happy is when I was playing. Mm. And so it must have triggered that memory being in that space. Mm. My body felt most at ease because that's when I was happiest. Mm. And so I looked at each other with tears in our eyes and it's like, 
wow, the body remembers, you know, and yeah, and that, and that we, the feelings, the sensorial feelings had stayed with her and got released. So this idea, what we learned is, you know, our, our hypothesis was confirmed. We learned that, you know, more than half the people don't realize that their body is feeling all the time. They were surprised by the results. And the third thing is that people really just loved, it was called a space for being. And they said, oh my God, just asking us to be in each space, turn off our phones, just feel and just be, like feel the texture of the couch. You know, we even said, touch the art. They said, that was such a gift. Like we don't give ourselves the time to do that. Mm. So, um, you know, one, one of the things I would say is that people have got to, you know, just like science has now prove that we need to exercise 20 minutes a day. We need to sleep seven or eight hours a day. Now, you know, what we're finding is just 20 minutes of doing an art activity mm-hmm. will make you healthier and, and both mental and physical. And so, you know, what I would say in terms of advice is just to carve out 20 minutes a day and just have fun and try. One day it's working with clay, just another day it's with crayons, another day it's singing, another day it's dancing around the house for 20 minutes. Yeah. Um, yeah, That would be a great way for someone to start who is frozen in what to do. Mm. But why don't we go back to saliency, Susan? Yeah. I mean, I think the other, the other takeaway from a space for being was that once you're aware of this knowledge, um, you change the lens and you never see the world again in the same way. And so the agency that comes from having that sense of what your body is doing is really huge. And, and that ties into this whole idea of saliency. And so, so salient experiences are moments that resonate with us on a neurobiological level. So, you know, we have millions of sensorial stimuli coming in all the time into our bodies. And we could never pay attention to all of the things that are coming at us, right? Like you probably remember, you know, driving home and realizing, oh, I don't remember the last mile because you couldn't possibly, you don't need to anymore, right? So the brain is an expert at filtering out these many inputs that are coming in that we think are, that we deem as irrelevant Mm -hmm. and focusing its attention on what we believe is pertinent. And Mm -hmm. that's really important. So something that's salient is either practically or emotionally important to you. And it's going to be different for me than it is for you, than it is for Ivy. And so researchers are discovering that through these highly salient experiences like arts and aesthetics, this is where these quadrillions of new synapses are formed that create this repository of stored knowledge and responses that are so unique. They're as unique as your fingerprint. So no one of, none of us have the same salient experiences in the exact same way. So when I say, oh, I think that's beautiful. um, I mean something different than what you are thinking is beautiful, but what's getting released as these neural um, pathways are being created are things like dopamine is being released or serotonin is being released. And those things are helping to regulate memory formation. And so, you know, we're bringing, creating these neural pathways and we're also creating memories that are really um, very, very specific to what we're in and what we're able to recall over time. And there's a researcher named Anjan Chatterjee that's done some interesting theoretical work in this space. Um, he calls it the aesthetic triad. Mm-hmm. And basically, um, is a theoretical model that looks at 
think about three different searches, three different sort of circles in terms of how we perceive the world. One is called knowledge meaning. Um, and that's kind of like where you come from and what you know, like could be early childhood experiences or life experiences, culture. The second is sensory motor. So it's your physiological system. So let's say my hearing might be more acute than Ivy's hearing. You know, that's automatically a physiological systems difference. Or, you know, maybe I process information in a different way because I've had some kind of uh, visual system impairment. Um, and then the third is emotional valuation or how I feel about something. And that's kind of where the default mode network comes in. So at the intersection of those three circles is your unique aesthetic experience or a moment that is achieved. Mm -hmm. And so the more salient the experiences are, the more peak those aesthetic experiences are. So, you know, you might have this awe-inspiring experience that pulls together all of those different things. And we know that environments, enriched environments, really have a huge impact on, on what that feels like and what that and how that helps to form sort of your neurobiological pathways over your lifetime too. Mm-hmm. Okay. So one thing, I mean, you're making me think about, I could go a thousand directions. I want to ask you both about all sorts of topics. I want to ask you about dreams. I want to ask you about trauma. I want to ask you what you think about psychedelics and ketamine. But I will focus right now. What I really want to point out is, um, I don't know, as you're sharing, I I sometimes judge myself as a practitioner because I will get stuck in the same, I don't want to know, I don't want to say it's necessarily a trauma response, but it's like a certain feeling that I'm like, I am so freaking sick of this feeling. For example, the other day, um, a very close friend was going through something, assist my sister-in-law was going through something. Both of them were just not themselves because they're going through something but there are two attachment figures to me outside of my parents, like my very best friend and my sister-in-law. Um, my big sister passed away. So I have even more so of an attachment to my sister-in-law. Um, and it was so interesting. I was kind of in a mood the other day and anger is like, not my go-to. Um, I'm much more like shaky, anxious if I'm going to go somewhere dark for myself. So it wasn't a normal poison for me to pick. But I was really angry and I finally call my best friend because unlike my sister-in-law, like there's still some dynamics there. It's my brother's wife and I love her, but with your best friend, you could be more forward. So I call my best friend and I said, okay, I know you're going through something and it's, it's like, I'm angry and I don't know, I'm not angry at you because you're allowed to go through something. I'm not angry at my sister-in-law because she's allowed to be busy but it's bringing up something for me. And after a few minutes on the phone with her, it was like, oh, wow, the both of them are triggering my dad issues. And I have such a lovely father who did his best. And I could give all the disclaimers and sugarcoating. But the truth was he was super stressed out growing up. And I felt like I didn't matter because he was really busy and really stressed out. And so having two people that I'm attached to in my life, my sister and my best friend, just tri triggered like the shakes for me and like this rage. And here I am thinking, I'm too old to be still in the same dad story. Like I have done a master's in psychology. I have gone to every retreat. I have done the mushrooms. I have done the meditation certification. Like I am certified in some sort of, you know, healing. But it just, what struck me is that these neuro pathways, it's like, well, you know what? I lived under, under my parents' household for two decades. So I've actually been under their household longer than I've been on my own terms. 
And so I just kind of softened and was like, all right, I'm not going to judge myself for still holding on to something that I sat with for two decades. Um, so I guess what's present for me is how and asking you both um, as creative minds, as brain experts, like how do we start to st- to step away and release that wiring? How do we transform our wiring, whether it's through the arts, whether it's through any sort of healing modalities? I would just love your feedback because I know a lot of people are like, wow, I'm still mad at my ex-husband from 30 years ago. Like boring, like I'm tired of being tired, you know? Um, So I would love to give them some tools or insights to start to change their neurology. Yeah, no, well, thank you for sharing that. That's a, um, a really personal and and important kind of insight that I think you're you're coming up to. And you know, I think these triggers are an opportunity for growth. Um, and I think being gentle with yourself is also really important because you're evolving. And I would argue that, you know, from a mood metrics point of view, um, your moods are shifting, your your states of mind are shifting, um, and you're acknowledging that. Um, you know, one of the things that art can do, art making can do is help you find that path forward. I'm a collager. And what I find is that um, when I am in a state that I don't understand, um, I'll collage and I'll be able to gain a lot more insight into what I'm feeling and how to move through it. And, you know, sometimes things get, become very concrete and you, and when something becomes very concrete, the most important thing is to sort of step back and try to figure out what are the elements that have made it concrete. And so I think the fact that you actually got to the place about your dad um, is really important because you know that there are certain triggers that make you feel vulnerable. And so then what do you do? You know, Ivy and I talk about this a lot. Nature is one of the most neuroaesthetic places. It's the easiest place to hopefully find, you know, you can look up in the sky, right? You know, color, sound, texture, temperature, shape, smell. And so what are those things that help you to bring yourself back into yourself? Because at that point you're, you're dislocating, right? You're, you've, you've moved out of your body and what you want to do is move back into that place of grounding. And you know, emotions are energy in motion. And so we are dynamic beings. And so first of all, I agree with Susan that the fact that you recognize that pattern that you, and you know, I think you're absolutely right. We just keep digging those neural pathways deeper and deeper and deeper if we're in that same environment and we don't realize what how deep the hole is. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're right about that longevity of, which is why we have to honor the fact of the, the impact the childhood has on us and work to uh, figure out what those patterns are and then create new pathways that dig you know, dig new pathways. And then, as we said earlier, we'll get rid of, we'll prune the old ones. But the first thing is recognizing it and then trying to move through it because we're we're, mo- we're energy in motion mm-hmm. by doing other things or expressing your anger in a different way through some medium. You know, Susan and I spoke to some people who are very involved in trauma. And when there are no words for things, kids tend to draw or, or using other ways to express yourself when you can't even put words to something. So that's where art modalities really help a lot of people as well. Mm, I was actually about to ask that you read my mind was going to ask about like, how can we, how are we using the arts for mental health, mental illness disorders? I know that there's art therapy 
Um, can you just explain maybe some um, accessible, interesting ways for maybe parents listening right now with kids that they think, wow, they could really benefit from some healing through the arts, um, some, some insight on how we are using art to heal. You know, and there's creative arts therapy, mm-hmm. and I want to talk about that. And then there's art as therapy, right? Mm. And so, you know, we can use art as therapy, art for healing all the time. And, you know, the parasympathetic parasympathetic nervous system, which is the part of the the limbic system that really connects into the vagus nerve where, you know, you really want to, which goes all the way down, you know, into your um, abdomen, you really want to um, activate that because when you're activating that, you, you're helping yourself soothe. It's self-soothing. Wow. And you can do that as easily as humming um, and moving and getting that sort of part of your body activated. And, it, you know, and you, you've probably seen children, um, you know, move their bodies, hum, sing, you know, they're self-soothing. And those are activities that can be very, very immediate. Even things like taking a bath where you're using water as a way to really calm your nervous system. You know, when you're that, when you're, when you've had a stress situation or an anxiety situation, or you've moved into trauma, the somatic sensory opportunities for healing are really important and bringing that movement into the body's Ivy said, you know, energy and motion is super important. In the book, we talked to first responders who were trapped with trauma, you know, in their bodies, and they're continually being re-traumatized through their jobs and getting that energy out into visual art. In some cases, sometimes um, it's as simpling as doodling. Um, We talk about a woman um, who used visual art and created what she called continuous paintings, where she created over a hundred canvases, paint over paint over paint to be able to exercise, literally bring out the trauma of you know, decades mm-hmm. onto a canvas to evaluate it, bring on the next one and evaluate it. And that was her medium. Mm-hmm. Um, Ivy mentioned clay. Clay, you use both hands. So there's dexterity in both hands simultaneously with clay. It's one of the very few mediums where you literally don't, doesn't matter whether you're left or right-handed, your both hands are working equally as well. It's sort of wow. a phenomena. Um, but that also releases oxytocin, which is another you know, bonding, it's the love hormone. It's another way to soothe your system and help you to connect. Um, And so, you know, some of these ways of using um, even coloring is known as a, as a way to, you know, self soothe and to have that as an aesthetic experience. When you're working with a creative arts therapist, they're psychotherapists, they're, whether it's music, dance, um, visual arts, they're trained in, um, in psychotherapy, cognitive, sometimes cognitive therapy, but psychology, and they're using the arts in a highly therapeutic process. And so it's a trusting relationship that you're building with that other person. And that's also a really important tool, um, to be able to help you move through something. So I had a creative therapist, artist therapist say to me recently, when you need to change a light bulb, you don't need me. But when you need to really change the wiring, you need me. Mm. And you are, and I think that's a great metaphor, right? So we can soothe ourselves, as Ivy said, 20 minutes a day. We can create ways to self-heal and flourish. So it's not just about coping, 
But when we really need to work on something with someone and you can't get out of what you were talking about, you can't get out of that loop yeah. and you're ready to get out of that loop, you might need a creative arts therapist to work with you like you might work with a, a psychologist or right. or a, a coach or someone who, but you're using art as your vehicle. Right. I love this. And actually I want to name for anyone listening. Um, self-soothing is so powerful. I think that um, I spent a lot of years, I, I had a business experience where I succeeded and then I failed and I was in a lot of debt and I had to pay it off. Uh, or I chose to versus claiming bankruptcy. And over those years, I realized that my debt was a, a lack of an ability to self-soothe because I, I wanted something and I couldn't sit in the no. And I think that there are so many insidious ways that the absence of self-soothing translates into these results that people are so not happy with. So I wanted to just give a shout out to the field of dialectical behavioral therapy because they have a very comprehensive workbook online with a self-soothing checklist that is pages and pages. They have auditory, visual, all these different ways. It could be as little as lighting a candle and as hefty as like taking a jog but there's so many different ways that we can self-soothe. Okay. So I'm so into all the studies because you both are rare guests that have access to so much research. So I'd love to know about any particular neuro arts study outside of the one that we talked about um, that was really surprising for you that maybe could educate some of us listening um, on ourselves or just on humans in general to, to better understand the arts and uh, ourselves. Well, in general, one that I love that maybe Susan can give more detail is the woman at MIT who is now working with patients with dementia and Alzheimer's using sound and color, uh, two art forms, um, to literally um, be able to clear plaque out of their brain and get to a better state. I mean, it's, she found, you know, 40 hertz is a sound combined with certain color lights mm -hmm. will, will um, activate the brain in a way that it starts to eliminate some of the plaque that is causing some of the dementia. Mm. Isn't that correct, Susan? Yep. Yeah. I mean, that's um, Liwei Sai at MIT. And I think, you know, the, 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 the takeaway there is that these aesthetic experiences of light and sound are being used not only to manage symptoms, but potentially to create a cure. And so when you think about arts and aesthetics, it's not a nice to have. Um, it's we're evolutionarily wired. And now researchers are using that knowledge to actually look at ways to heal. Mm -hmm. uh, my one of my favorites, and it's so simple, but it's so great because we we learned we learned when we were in third grade that if you weren't good at it, you shouldn't do it, is that you don't have to be good at an art form to have significant impact and that it is our birthright. And I think that just bringing that forward is licensed to be able to really experiment and try different things and to not limit ourselves. So I love that work. And I love the work in the default mode network. I think that is going to be increasingly more and more important as we start to think about art as medicine and personalized art as medicine. Yeah. So I think that's really important work. That's just starting to really blossom. Yeah, I think what Susan said was important about personalized art as medicine because it's about finding 
which art form is your medicine? Right. You know, what brings, as you said in the beginning, I love what you said in the beginning about, because I agree with you that we're all here to just be more of who we are, but we often don't know who we are. And some of these art forms will just help turn yourself inside out. Mm-hmm. I love it so much. And I, um, as I'm listening to both of you, I mean, you, you've, it, I can hear how much research, intention, passion, commitment you've had to this topic. Um, and I was going to ask you, like, what do people do when they feel like they're artistically void? Like, I'm just not artistic. Um, it, it sounds like it's not about the result, which you were talking about before, which I think is so common in our society, um, is, is focusing on the result. And what comes up for me is thinking about work structures. Like, you know, COVID, I think, really expedited the change in our society, obviously, around working from home, et cetera. And also just poly work, you know, like I'm aware that the millennial generation started doing poly work just to pay the bills because, you know, they needed multiple jobs for their loans. Then you've got Generation Z now where I'm seeing them do poly work to express themselves. Like they don't want one 40 hour a week job. They want three things for, you know, 10 hours a week each. And so what I've come to in watching all of this and having written a career book about all of this is that there is so there's so much space in today's world to change your work structure, to open up space for creativity. So in my case, as a business owner, you know, I, I have um, a lot of privilege to be able to spend a lot of time getting my certification in herbalism, getting my certification in meditation, becoming a cordon bleu chef. These are all things on my bucket list that I'm actively doing. Um, and I know that not everyone has the space in their life to go all the way in, but what you're sharing about art being medicine, it's like, really asking the question of like, can you afford not to add the arts into your life? Like what, who came up with this structure of 40 hours, 60 hours, whatever it is per week that people are working and where they're working, how they're, so I love that we're in a time of questioning. Um, let's say that somebody's listening to both of you right now. They're going to get um, your book, your brain on art. They're going to go on their quest to be more creative. Um, what have I not asked you that you would want them to know? Well, that's a great question. Um, I mean, I think what you're saying, uh, just to underscore, is that, you know, first of all, the 40-hour work week started by Henry Ford, um, you know, in a production line, right? I mean, it actually started at a 48-hour work week. Yeah. And I think the thing that I like what you're saying is, you know, you don't need to ask permission. You need to create the life that works for you. And I'd underscore the word create, you know, you need to create your own life. And I think the more we sort of step back from these mythologies and these paradigms, I mean, we are in a cultural shift. And I think art, every single young person that I meet with and talk with, I say, tell me what, tell me what you do. I'm a bioengineer and I'm a violinist, right? I'm a dancer and I'm a neuroscientist. And People do not define themselves by one thing um, and we aren't one thing. And I, and I think that it's like, you know, push it out, break it out, hit the paradigm shift. Like, don't be afraid to do that. And that's risk. Right. And so I just think it's, it's, you know, write your own story and, and, and that takes bravery and courage, but I think that's where the, that's where the action is. And that itself is a creative act, you know, and you started with, talking, we wanted to talk about creativity. And I've always looked at my life as a blank canvas. Mm -hmm. And so I approach life that way. 
And so, um, yeah, I think, and this idea of being multidisciplinary, I think that's what we're moving toward because that's the only thing that's going to solve, move us forward and solve the world's problems mm -hmm. is to have all these different lenses that we look at things through, not to pick a swim lane and say, I will be this because you, you're not just that. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think that was done for productivity to say, well, what are you going to be great at so you could earn a high income, right? Mm -hmm. Versus I am all of these things and I may be this thing in this chapter of my life and this thing in some a different chapter of my life. Mm -hmm. So I just keep, I think thinking of your whole life as a creative act and making sure that you don't do what you just did by saying, I'm not artistic because you got to throw that out the window mm -hmm. because what we're talking about is just expressing yourself. And we all have parts of ourselves that we can express, even if it's writing a secret down on a piece of paper and putting it to the side, you're expressing yourself, you're lightening your cognitive load. Mm, I love that. What comes to mind with listening to both of you is like my meditation teacher, he grabbed a uh, toothbrush and he said, for you, this is a thing that cleans your teeth and for your dog, it's a toy. Mm -hmm. And it's like everything in Buddhism, you know, it's like everything has is empty of meaning until you assign it. And, and we forget that. So it's, you both are doing such cool work. I feel like I want to be you when I grow up. <laughs> and um, thank you so much for your time. Um, if, if people want to keep learning from you, um, where do you suggest that they go after they get your brain on art? Where else can they learn? Well, our website, you know, www.yourbrainonart.com. And we all, and there's a place you could, you know, uh, even tell us your stories or things that you want to share about art that may have changed your life and a way to get in touch with us. And then um, our Instagram, Your Brain on Art book. So those are two good ways. But believe me, you will be, I wish I was as in tune as you are at your age. You're going to surpass us by the time you're our age because you've started the journey early. So thank you for doing the work you do. Thank yeah. you. That means a lot. I feel like, you know, personal development, it's like a marathon and not a sprint. So it's like sometimes the growth looks so messy. You feel like you're a thousand steps back. And um, I think just our conversation today reminded people, be kind to yourself. Um, you just took the words out of my mouth. I, I was going to say that, like, be kind to yourself and surround yourself with other people that are kind, because that's, you know, we were at a talk and Mark Hyman said um, that everybody at the group were kind, smart, and beautiful. <laughs> and and I think that's a real, you're beautiful when you're kind, right? Yeah. So Well, especially be kind to others too, right? right. Be kind yourself and to others. Yeah. It's a word you don't often use or think about. So I love that. Mm, thank you both so, so much. I'm oh, so excited for everybody to dig in. And um, I hope to have you on again. If you ever have another book, I could ask you questions for days. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Go your book. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Thank you so much for tuning into the U-Turn podcast. And thank you again so much for our sponsors. We are here because of you and to our listeners. Thank you for checking out our sponsors. We always pick people and brands that we trust and we believe in. And just for listening to the show, writing your reviews on the Apple app, and just being willing to make your own U-Turns. We'll see you next week. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, 
and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.